Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Cybercognition Podcast, a show about artificial intelligence and how it is transforming the world around us. With your biological, sentient, and mostly rational human host, Hutch. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Cybercognition Podcast. As always, I am one of our co-hosts, Hut. I work at Trace3 as a technology innovator. I also create the Sociosploit blog and am the author of the book, The Language of Deception, Weaponizing Next Generation AI. And I am Len No. I am a technical evangelist, a futurist, a white hat for CyberArk Software, and up-and-coming author with my books going to be released on my journey in transhumanism by adding microchips to my body for offensive security purposes. Awesome. And we got a really exciting episode today, uh, looking at a number of different things. As always, we're going to start with looking at a few news articles that caught our attention. We're going to talk about the, the first human trials for Neuralink. We're going to talk about how AI garbage is just saturating Google results. We're going to look at an MIT study on robots replacing human jobs. And then after the news segment, we're going to jump into a new segment that we've never done before, What Grinds My Gears, where, and this will be the first time we do it. I have a, a feeling it is absolutely not going to be the last, but this segment is going to be focused on if one of us, myself or Lynn, really wants to get something off of our chest and just rant. And then, of course, we're going to go into our main segment today, which I'm really excited about, which is going to be looking at the simple question of, is technology over time making us dumber? So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. So, All right. So everybody out there at this point has obviously heard about Neuralink and their first human trial. You know, I'm, I'm going to get just a few moments on this because Hutch and I have actually had some conversations. And after, you know, some things that I've told him, we're going to turn this probably into a future episode. But if you notice one thing that it has caught my mind very quickly is they're making this seem like it's the very first time a microchip has ever gone into a human brain. And with all honesty, this is not the case. If you don't believe me, check. There's a couple of other really amazing companies out there. Check out Synchron. Check out BlackRock Neuroscience. I really think that this is a great step forward for futurism the abilities of the human body, d addressing deficiencies in, you know, some type of issue with the human condition, amputees, uh, generative deficiencies. But at the same time, we need to understand that this is only one company. So spread the wealth. Congratulations, Elon. I hope this works because even if not as much as he wants, this is still moving that needle forward and anything that he does, the rest of the companies are going to be able to look at his research as well. Uh, one thing that I will finish with before I get back to Hutch, because I know he's got some opinions on this as well, is when you're talking about BCIs and brain computer interfaces, the big thing you have to look at is what process are they using to actually implement the devices? Most of the time, it's a very invasive surgery that quite requires opening up the human skull. You know, there are, like I said, different companies out there, Synchron, 
these guys are using more of a stint methodology and just as a little snippet for something, if you're looking for stocks or anything, I'm not getting a kickback, but Microsoft and Bezos are actually jumping in bed with Synchron. So there are some other really, really big hitters coming into the brain computer interface, you know, arena. But what do you think, man? It's a really interesting space. I, I think one thing that we need to be careful of when looking at this is it's very easy to confuse what we're doing right now with Neuralink with Elon Musk's grand vision of brain-computer interfaces, which I think is two very different things. So if you look at some of his early interviews, such as at Code Conference, where he talked about his idea of Neuralink, it was this idea of being able to essentially have infinite access to information with your brain in this low-latency transfer of data. And my understanding from everything that I've seen is, is that this is not anything anywhere close to that. And is that no. the sense you've gotten as well, In No. It, no. I, I've even heard you know some claims of of future versions of this potentially able to download your entire, you know, memories from your, you know, your, your entire life's memory, whatever memories are in your brain, you know, being able to convert all of that into some type of digital format. What we're dealing with today, we are at the very beginning of those, the road that's going to take us to that. You know, I think those type of, you know, capabilities are, are going to happen somewhere in the future. But right now, we're still trying to be able to manipulate prosthetic limbs, move a cursor, possibly be able to convert thought into text. It's just, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get there. But right now, we're at the rudimentary stages, you know, and I think this is honestly going to be one of the most exciting times as we see more and more functionality, you know, and let's be honest, what happened when, you know, Elon and, you know, his grand vision started popping out there. You know, let's, let's take a look real, you know, and I'm jumping off a track for half a second, but, you know, first there was SpaceX, then you had Deep Blue. Now the idea of, you know, commercial space flight, it, it's a race. So I do see what Elon is doing as opening a door that's bringing attention on something that could potentially change our entire vision of what being a human is. But I think we need to realize that there's more than one company. Yep, agreed. And I also think that it's important to realize that right now we're not at a stage where people are trying to necessarily convert themselves into superhumans. This is really something that's being used to help people that have disabilities. I mean, right now yeah. it's higher latency than most of the ways that we communicate with computers. So it's really for people that have no other means to interface with computer systems and with the outside Absolutely. world. You know, right now this is a basically addressing a deficiency. And from my side of the fence, you know, I actually volunteered to actually be a, a non, you know, deficient human tri trial for Synchron. Really? I sent him an email and said, hey, if you need somebody that, you know, you know, you want to see, basically, you know, you want that control, I'm willing to do it for you. You know, they, they <laughs> you're, you're braver than I am. <laughs> they haven't responded. And, and my wife said, honestly, if the, if the surgery didn't, you know, kill me, she would. But, did did you, know, you mention in the email that you have 10 times the number of implants of the normal? Yes, humans? I did. Yeah. I absolutely. I'm like, you know, the idea of doing this is nothing out of the ordinary to me. You know, I would love to be the next, uh, you know, Dr. Kevin Warwick. And if you're not familiar with he, who he is, he was actually one of the very first people to ever do a brain computer interface 
uh, and he was based out of London. You know, it was amazing. He wrote a book on it. It's called I Cyborg. Fascinating stuff. This guy was actually like the dude who wrote the book for, you know, the road that I walked down as a transhuman. But yeah, I think that, you know, keep in mind, this is not like a, you know, you're not going to put this into your head and, you know, you're going to be, you know, instantly able to stand up and walk. Or, you know, you're not going to be able to just look at a computer and it's going to go, and now you're, you're interfaced with it, like, you know, shadow run or something. It doesn't have, have access to all the internet's information. Yeah. You don't, you don't have like a second consciousness in your brain going, I know what you're trying to do, Hutch, and we can't allow it. (laughs) You know, this is for that, maybe that soldier that, you know, suffered a wound, you know, and lost a limb. And now maybe they'll be able to potentially have a, you know, some kind of a, a prosthetic that they can actually have more ambulatory action with. And it's something that they could improve the, the quality and condition of their, their lives with. But right in terms of just upgrading, you know, or and, and wanting to become Johnny Mnemonic and have a hard drive in your head and that stuff's probably going to happen, but we're, we're, we're still years away from it. And as much as this has been awesome, I could talk about this all day. We do need to keep going. But, you know, like I said, I think we should turn this into a, a full episode. But Absolutely. You know, beyond that, you know, next thing that you had mentioned was the AR garbage. And since you're the AI guy around here, why don't you take yeah, this so- one? So this was an interesting one that we saw a article in futurism.com that was talking about increasing concerns over the internet becoming just saturated with content on top of content that then backlinks to that content. So essentially becomes SEO or search engine optimized. And we're seeing people increasingly complain that traditional search engines like Google are becoming problematic because what they're trying to find, they can't find in all of the mess. And I think this really connects back to what we talked about in our previous episode. So for anybody that missed it, we did our previous episode on hallucinations and just the way that AI generation is significantly increasing the amount of noise out there compared to the signal to where it's becoming harder and harder to find really what you're trying to locate in terms of information. And I think this is just one more example of that. So not a whole lot to say here. I I think it's interesting. I think it validates some of what we were talking about on the previous episode. And so I wanted to call it out for that reason. Well, I only have one comment to that. And, you know, and this is more just a general, you know, philosophical question and again like you said we we went really deep into this last week so i'm not going to spend too much time on it but you know are we at a point where what the way things have been done just no longer works anymore is standard search engine optimization is search engines even a viable solution looking forward with the way ai works And, you know, the antithesis of that question would be, how do we do this considering what we're seeing in terms of copyright, you know, litigation going on currently against some of the the LLMs and their use of copyrighted material? I think that there is still a place for search engines. Now, I don't know if search engines are the best way to approach that digging for information, but... I do think that we have to have something there that allows us to sanity check what's coming out of these LLMs. And again, something we talked about significantly on our previous episode. Yeah, but to that point, what I originally said was, is 
standard search engine optimization no longer the way that we can do things? You know, maybe we just need to find a new methodology instead of what we've done in the past to rank sites. I agree. Uh, SEO is far too methodical and it's far too easy for people to hack and exploit to bring stuff that they want up and manipulate and bring the, the content that they want up to the top. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't, I don't think either one of us have the answer to this question, but I love just throwing it out there. And if people have anything they'd like to, you know, comment on this, please add to the comments, you know, get into the conversation. You know, we would love to hear what you have to think about that. Absolutely. So good Lord, they're coming for our jobs, Hutch. Yep. So the uh, MIT recently did a research study that was looking at the not necessarily the likelihood but at least the how economically feasible it is and how economically beneficial it would be to offload or to replace certain human jobs with machines and what they found in this study was that in the jobs that they looked at at the moment less approximately 23% of those jobs would be cost efficient to actually automate and replace humans with now i do think that this research study was a bit misleading or maybe not the study itself but at least some of the articles that were written about it because a lot of the articles indicated that mit is saying that the robots aren't coming for your job yet the problem is if you look at and actually dig into this study that mit did it was based on computer vision based jobs so people that are actually looking at images making determinations based on that and seeing how cost efficient it would be to have computer vision systems replace them and anybody that works in ai knows that the cost to build and the cost for inference and compute for computer vision systems is far higher than just text-based communication-based systems so what this survey this research does not take into account is jobs that could be replaced by something like ChatGPT, where you just have language reasoning and i think that a lot of those jobs likely would be much more cost efficient for a replacement so i think there there's hope here that there are there we we still have some runway and i think that we uh need to continue focusing on ways that society remains functional in the wake of what we know is going to be a, a significant disruption uh, assuming that and, and that's the, the hard thing is nobody really knows where the ceiling is it's possible that we've now hit that point where we're going to start seeing diminishing returns on growing these systems but if you follow the trend line it it tells us that we we are in for some significant disruption and i, I think that and even this article says that uh the the researchers at mit believe that we have more runway, but these jobs are feasibly replaceable already. It's just not cost efficient yet. And we know com cost of compute goes down. We know that these systems become more and more efficient. So I'm going to go with something a little bit more philosophical. You know, if you take a look back during the Industrial Revolution, you know, there comes those points in time where you can see some form of technology, you know, prop plane to jet engine, you know, steam engine to internal combustion. You know, there are those points in, in history where you can actually put a pin in the map and be like, this changed everything. And we, I feel like we, we are there with the LLMs, you know, and I'm not going to be as gloom and doom on this one because, you know, I'm sure when, you know, 
there were those other points that in history where I was just speaking of, I'm sure there were people that were like, Oh my God, my skills and you know, everything, you know, how am I going to survive? Right. You know, and the truth is, you know, we as humans, we're, we're a very resilient species, but I, I'd like to build off of what you said, as far as, you know, what MIT was referencing in terms of we've got roadmap, you know, yeah, we have roadmap. So if we see this coming, the only thing I can say is, do like what our, our ancestors did. If you see something that you look at and you can just be like, yeah, this could be replaced. Start looking for what are those jobs that the AIs, the LLMs, what can't they replace? You know, what's going to be a job, you know, 15 years down in the future, you know, that's still a viable way to survive. You know, and just like everybody else, it's a crapshoot. We don't know what's going to happen. But if you know what you're going to be doing is definitely not going to be there, you know, use that runway. I mean, how many times, you know, have, have you, we heard of those stories where, you know, oh, the, the hurricane's coming. We're, we live in Texas. You know, hurricane's coming. I'll wait and oh, see if it, the forecast it, changes, right? Yeah, we got time. It'll change course. Hurricane's coming. We got time. It'll change course. Evacuate now. Shoot, we're stuck in the traffic jam. Yep. That's you exactly know, what happens. So, so I agree with you 100%. But look, look to the right. future, right? Yep. Have, have a you game know, plan. If you, see, if you see the writing on the wall, you know, it, it's your own fault if you choose not to read it. But I am going to take that as a great segue to introduce our next session. So, you know, Hutch, you know, alluded to this in the intro. And the truth is, if you don't, for those of you that this may be your first time hearing from either him or I, we are usually very calm and, and, and very, very subdued people. You know, we don't like to get loud. We don't like to really express our opinions about things, you know, but there are those times where there are those issues that, you know, we just can't just keep to ourselves. So considering this is, you know, our platform to give our opinions on things, we both agreed that this should be a place where we can actually have a soapbox for a few minutes, you know, and when we do this, these opinions are those of the individual talking, but I agree. Hutch, why don't you tell us what's grinding your gears today? All right. So really this has been bubbling up since last week. There was a situation in, in the wake of the Kansas City Chiefs making it through the playoffs and into the Super Bowl. There suddenly was a, 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 a number of people on Twitter who decided that it would be a good idea to create generative adults, essentially pornographic images of Taylor Swift. And let me start by saying, and I know this is going to come as a shocker, that what I'm ranting about here is not coming to the defense of Taylor Swift. I should also say that I think that what happened here was terrible and it should right. never happen I, I to anyone. I interrupt for one, one section here, Hutch, and, and feel free to do this when it's my rant, especially if if it validates clarification, are you sure. a Swifty? I am not a Swifty. <laughs> okay. But, but so he, really what, what I was upset about about this and why I was so irritated was the fact that this same exact thing happened about three months ago in November. You had a number of kids at a New Jersey high school that were actually circulating generated adult 
images of essentially children, other children at that school. And we're circulating that around. And what was so frustrating to me is that our society has our priorities so backwards that the amount of media attention that came out of this happening to Taylor Swift was exponentially more than what happened to, again, these children that it was happening to. And I think for one, the my first source of frustration is the fact that this became such a big deal just because of the spotlight that somebody has on them in general. The second reason that I found this extremely infuriating is, once again, this happened three months ago. How have we not done something about this yet? I mean, this is, we've got laws against revenge pornography. We've got laws against child pornography. We've got laws against extortion by using explicit adult material. All of that is very closely related to this. It, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, if you're Democrat, conservative, liberal. I don't care. Anybody should be able to see the clear harm that this is causing. So I think the other thing that we need to start thinking about is we are seeing innovation. We are seeing technology moving faster and faster. And on the other side of things, we are seeing our government move slower and slower as it becomes more polarized. And we are going to have to figure out a situation where we can improve the speed of our regulation and legislation so that it can adequately address the very, very rapidly changing landscape of technology. So with that, I will discontinue my rant. That you is know, what's grinding my gears I can't today. Let you do that, dude. You know, there's a few things that we definitely need to put in there. And that is, you know, I agree. Number one, I agree with every single thing you said. And two points to add to that. This just happened not too long ago with uh, Gail King and Tom Hanks. And it, even before that, during the lockdown, it, if you remember, there was the uh, big scandal with Bruce Willis where the Russian telecom company and the deep fake company Deep Cake had come out and said that Bruce Willis had actually sold his digital likeness and they were going to be producing a new Die Hard movie. But the one thing that I did want to say is if you or someone that you know falls victim to one of these AI sextortion types of situations, do not be afraid to reach out to the authorities. If your local police don't want to do something, reach out to the FBI because the internet is considered technically, you know, it can be crossing borders. It can be crossing international borders, but there is help out there. And, and that is the one thing that I wanted to stress at the end of this, you know, people may not know it, but I have a lot of daughters and I have grandchildren and you are not alone and there are resources for you. So don't think that if this happens to you or someone that you love, that there's no help and you're basically doomed. There are people. So with that, I think it might be about that time, man. Yep. So main segment, we are going to be talking about this idea of is technology making us dumber? And Lynn originally suggested this. I, I thought it was a fantastic idea as soon as he suggested it. And it immediately made me think of the movie Idiocracy, which for anybody that hasn't seen, the characters uh, essentially time travel into the future based on some government project. And what you would expect to find in the future is a very sophisticated, intelligent world. And instead, what they stumble into when they go to the future is that everybody is exponentially dumber 
than they were in the present. And that's largely because of the fact that people have become more and more dependent on advanced technology. And there are no, I think the way that they describe it in the film is that there's no natural predators anymore. So traditional natural selection just kind of goes out the window and mostly the the population just grows based on who reproduces the most. And so it, uh, it, it was a fascinating look at the future. But you forgot the most important part of the movie. There's electrolytes in there. There are electrolytes in there. Anybody that hasn't seen it, you should absolutely see the movie. It's it's a classic. Uh, but it also day in and day out feels a little bit more like prophecy and less entertainment. Yeah, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. For an idiocracy, you know, these things are not meant to be manuals. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, I'm just going to ask a simple question, and. and Keep in mind, the opinions stated during this segment are not meant to offend anybody, regardless of your age, education, or anything else. This is just a philosophical discussion. You know, I believe, Justin, you and I are both what we would consider Gen Xers. Yep. You know, we came up in a different time. You and I are part of the last generation, if you look at it, that actually was born prior to the advent of the Internet. Right. We weren't born with a, a tablet or phone in our hands. Yep. No. And, and I hate to use the term, but, you know, we didn't have the digital babysitter that everybody seems to be using today. You know, we were expected to actually use more of our imagination. You know, we, we were told to go outside and play, you know, and, and you know, the funny thing is, you know, I, I've been doing the writing of the book that I'm on and I, I've had to kind of go back and, you know, do my early history, you know, and it's funny because I'm looking at the way my parents raised me and it's like, by today's definitions, we were abused. It was, it was neglect. You know, we weren't getting beat or anything, but you know, I don't know about you. When I grew up, the, the standard phrase was, you know, you get up, you know, especially on summer vacation, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, mom, I'm going to play with my friends. When are you going to be home? Come home before the street lights come on. It was a different world, you know, but now instead of experiencing life and going out and playing in the woods and, you know, riding your bicycles, jumping over things, learning that you shouldn't try and jump over some things, <laughs> you know, to the point of your natural selection, we learned cause and effect through pain, through experience. Yep. You know, now you don't have to, you know, have the guts to jump out of an airplane. You can put on a set of VR glasses and almost experience the insane thing. You know, you when we started this, even back in, in medieval times, you know, let, let's take a look at some of the, just the simple things we've lost in terms of, you know, abilities. We were hunter-gatherers. Now we have Uber Eats. Yep. You know, we used to have an abacus. What? Yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and switch over. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, so, I, I I think I think you're right. There, there's there's a number of things that we've kind of seen throughout history that have dramatically changed the way that we think, the way that we 
do things. There's there's a number of technical terms out there that I, I think allude to this. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got cognitive offloading, the idea that we basically are offloading things that we traditionally did cognitively to technological devices. We've got the idea of digital amnesia. This is the idea that things that we used to remember and had to remember, we now store in a digital form. And then uh, something that we're going to talk about in a little bit later in this segment, of course, the idea of technological dependence, the absolute reliance on technology. Mm -hmm. So so I, I guess diving into some of those examples, uh, to your point, Lynn, we've lost that hunter-gatherer skill set. And I think that was probably one of the earliest things to go, is once we moved into that transactional economy, even before real technology, I think we started losing that skill set. Um, I, th I think I agree. I think that was the first one that, as a society, we gave up, you know, yeah. because time. You know, why, to be honest... You know, if we're going to do the hunter-gatherer me methodology, that is a full-time job. So how does society move forward if each one of us is just trying to take care of our own families? So, you know, in my opinion, these shifts go right into that same, you know, it may not be technolo technological advancement from what we would look at today, like computers to LLMs, but we have to think about what technology is at the times we're talking about. You know, so technology at that time may be, you know, mass farming practice, able to create better fertilizers, pesticides. These are still the technologies that were advancing in society in those time periods. Yep. And then there's the the question of, well, you you won't always have a calculator in your pocket, right? Um so this mm -hmm. this thing that we were always told in school, learn the math, and and it feels mm -hmm. like increasingly year over year, we've acknowledged that well that we do now have a calculator in our pocket, and I, I think there's less emphasis on being able to do traditional arithmetic. As kids, we were expected to learn all our times tables. We were mm -hmm. expected to do these by ourselves, and and I think there's some well, well, pros and if cons I can to, go that. Into that for a second. You know, and, and you know, I love. Honestly, I love the dynamic between the way that this is going, because this is the first time we've ever had one of these kind of philosophical episodes. You know, so I love the angles we're coming at this, you know, but you, were, you just brought up a, another point, mathematics. We were both brought up when you divide, you know, if you're going to, you know, do long division on paper. It was number, straight line, over, and you work down. Oh, uh, yeah, we have to talk about this. I mean, as a parent, any pa and I think most parents these days probably have it, that have helped their kids with math realize that the way that they're doing math on paper is so drastically mm -hmm. in the way that the methods that we learned. And it's it is so frustrating. Um, but, but this goes right into what the point that you were making, I, I feel, you know, you and I were taught you, you're never going to have a calculator in, at all times. You need to know how to actually do the math. My child and, you know, my, my, my children are a little older than yours. My kids actually got a short class in how to use the specific calculator that I had to buy. <laughs> yep, I believe it. And then beyond that, whatever this new box way of doing division thing is, makes absolutely no sense to me. And when I actually taught my daughter the way to do long division, the way that you and I were taught, and she did it that way, she was actually marked wrong by her, 
her her teacher, even though it was the correct answer. I'm like, this is not a proof. This is oh, not that's, algebra. That's not, cool. This is not a theorem. You don't have to prove it. Yeah, I actually did the same thing. I, I kind of retaught my son the way that I had learned, which unfortunately is, I mean, they, they need assistance with it. This is the way that I know how to do it. It unfortunately is probably confusing children even more because they learn one way in school and then they come mm -hmm. home. And I think most parents are probably doing this where they're like, oh, this is, this is the easier way to do it just because it's what we know. And, and but. to that point, you know, what you and I, took the time to actually teach our children, you know, long, long division, the way we were taught. What does most, what, what do you feel the most common response to that would be though? Eh, well, let me show you how to put this in the calculator. Yep. So, you know, the question, are we as a society starting to lose what used to be considered common knowledge? Is that now becoming tribal knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when was the last time you pulled out an, an actual physical paper map to get anywhere or mm. even use even well, I, I, I guess not you specifically, but we talk about society no, in general and especially newer that's generations. Point, man. You just got me because I was about to go. Oh, good Lord. When was that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a while. Yeah, we're you know, we're, lo we're also losing that situational awareness and else. that. That navigational awareness, uh, thanks to GPS, uh, smartphones are, uh, we talked about this previously, it's very easy to kind of disregard spelling altogether these days, because as long as you get it close mm -hmm. enough, it's going to come out correctly on yep. your phone with autocorrect. And oh, so yeah. even things like spelling words correctly is becoming uh, legacy and skills. And spelling. We have spell check. We have grammar check. We have, you know, overall, you know, we now have AI that's taking everything and going, well, let me look at this for you and see if, you know, I can make any suggestions that would make it easier digestible to your audience. Yep. So the idea, you know, and I, I hear, I'm going to throw the question out there because, you know, I am all about chaos and disorder. What happens? tomorrow you know and as a presenter i know you've had these kind of people in your presentations too you know the ones who are like well okay what happens if the flux capacitor is at max capacity and there is a giant solar flare at the same time what happens <laughs> if all the data goes away yeah you know and i know this is a unique case but for anybody that thinks that you know you can't turn the internet off I believe it was last year or the year that before, uh, and we're not going into the political unrest behind it, but it, correct me if I'm wrong, Hutch, but didn't Russia disconnect themselves from the back, the internet backbone as a trial sometime within the last two years, just to make sure that they could. Uh, if they did, I'm not aware of it, but I, that's not to say it's not possible. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I think there are definitely some possible, feasible scenarios where we could end up in a situation where we have the rug pulled out from under us and we no longer have access to those technologies. Uh, that, that would be fascinating if that, that did happen. So I'm definitely going to look into this more because that is. Uh... Uh, why? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This happened back in March of 2022. Wow. Uh, I remember. Talk, talk, talk about a way, great way to, to see the, entire society go into chaos really fast.
Because I think yeah. that's that's exactly what we're talking about here, right? Is that if we lose the things that we rely on, our ability to function just goes out the window. Absolutely. I mean, and I implore anybody that's listening to this right now, be absolutely dead honest with yourself for two seconds. Close your eyes and just ask yourself this question. Would I be able to function if I had no internet, no electricity, my cell phone didn't work? How many people even have a landline anymore? Yeah. Could I function if all of the technology that I have given all of my day-to-day -day into, you know, trust and faith and, you know, commitment to, if it was gone, could you function? And don't lie to yourself, you know, and for all those people who are like me that like to watch shows like Alone, you know, and, you know, the, the, out, the wild man survivor, Let's hey, those, those are easy to watch from your couch. And that's because he has military training on how to survive. He was taught. We're a bunch of armchair survivalists and we might make it a couple of days. But what it's, it's, it's always fun to watch the fan episodes of those where people come oh, on yeah. and enjoy watching the show and just think they can do it and just See, absolutely I'm, get destroyed. I'm one of those people that it's like, I know my own limitations. Could I survive for a while? But that's partially due to the fact that, you know, I'll eat anything. I mean, century eggs, termites in, in South Africa, Mapani worms, I'll eat anything. So I'm not going to starve to death, but I am not looking forward to it. You know, and I believe that most people from our generation could probably say what I'm saying. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be out there living in the lap of luxury, but I'll survive. You know, I was exposed to enough things as a child that I have enough things that I can pull from. Most of our, our the last two couple of generations, and, and I'm not dissing millennial or, you know, generational lines. Uh, my point is simply the fact from Internet on. All right. So uh, let's talk real quick about some of the dependency issues. And I know that we've been talking about reliance on technology, but there really is another level to that, which is almost to the point of addiction. And we're, we're starting to almost, see... Almost, brother. Not even almost. It is addiction. You know, this is crazy, you know, but there have been so many new, you know, medical conditions that have actually been added to the DS9 just dealing with technology, you know, and, you know, I love the first bullet point here. This was one of the, the questions that I had originally posed to you. Uh, what do you think? You know, and if I recall, it was something like, what do you think? You know, is, is there a, do you think there could be a direct correlation on the increase of ADD and ADHD over the, the time internet posts compared to past? And I'll be honest, it was absolutely astonishing the number of cases and the new discoveries of new cases of issues around attention and hyper disorder in these generations from the Internet post. And I think it was fascinating that you dug into the statistics, but I think honestly, most parents probably anecdotally can acknowledge that this is the case. I know we were talking about this previously before the recording that uh, I, I know my son who's 14, he, when I grew up, we'd, we'd take long rides in the car. We'd entertain ourselves just looking out the window and 
these days, most kids, if they're sitting there for two minutes without something electronic to keep their interest, they are bored out of their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, if we take a look back on one of the, you know, impacts of, of loss of skills, you had GPS. Another way to say GPS is, you know, navigational skills. You know, when I was growing up, uh, we were in the car you know, I was looking out the window. I was uh, reading the street signs. You know, I was at least memorizing where I turned physical landmarks to, you know, repeated travel. You know, it's insane. You know, one point I wanted to make in terms of the connection between ADD, ADHD, and the internet and the rise in the cases is, you know, there is a general question and debate online, whether that's just an increased recognition of the fact that there are so many cases. And to the opposite of that would be, you have people that are saying all of these new cases, they're just uh, a condition of overdiagnosis. And, and I think one thing that probably is the counterpoint to that is if you look at, and if for anybody that hasn't seen it, there's a fantastic documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And what this documentary dives into is the fact that many of these technology platforms, and specifically your social media platforms, intentionally dig into the psychology of their users in order to try to make them as addictive as possible. And you've got these, these dopamine hits from every couple of seconds as you're flipping through your Instagram or your TikTok, and then kids expect that constant stimulation when they're out in the real world. And that that's not the real world. And unfortunately, that makes them far more engaged in the digital space than in the real world. And, and I think that's creating all kinds of societal problems. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I'm going to come back to, to the, some of the points you made as far as the social media and the social effects. But, you know, since we're just basically talking, touching on the concepts of the addiction portion of this, I do have some statistics that I wanted to throw out there. Currently, 85% of anyone with a cell phone says that they would not be willing to go one day, 24 hours offline. You know, and to that point, you know, I don't know if you guys believe me or not, but I'll, we'll put this in down in, in the notes. But there's actually a contest out there that is actually being put on by, I believe it's uh, futurism.com. And if you're will, they're actually giving away $10,000 if you can actually give up your cell phone for a month. We'll, we'll put the link to this down in, in the notes. So if you do decide to take this challenge, please be sure to catch up on the episodes that you missed once you get back to us in a month. <laughs> If you can make it a month, you know, but th that's insane. The idea of even going offline now has become a contest. 26% of car accidents in the United States right now involve some type of cell phone, whether you're on your phone, screwing with your phone, listen, trying to change your navigation. 26% of every accident in the United States has some cell phone inclusion. You know, this one actually made me very self-conscious and, and has actually caused me to start checking my own behavior. But the average person checks their cell phone 96 times a day. That's 96. Nuts. And this last one, 
the average internet user is online 43% of their waking life. That wow. How almost much, half almost half of your life. life. And, and, and a good percentage of your life is spent sleeping. So half of the rest of it. Well, I mean half yeah. of, in total. The half almost maybe half maybe twenty percent maybe twenty percent is in the real world. Yeah, you know, and, and that to me is absolutely insane. Yeah, you know the the amount some of the actual effects of, of technology addiction, you know, the withdrawal symptoms are almost as bad as opioids. You know, and, and here's the catch to that. Before you know, I, I put my we move into the the interpersonal and the social health. We have engineered our society to where most of the functions that we require, we've made them impossible to do without technology. So our interaction with our governments, you know, I, I got a summons for jury duty the other day. And, and anybody that knows me will get a kick out of this. It was one of those little, you know, three by five cards. And they were like, scan this QR code for your jury summons. <laughs> That ain't happening. But, you know, now even your your obligations to your, your civil, your civil obligations are now tied to technology. You know, I had to call and they were, they gave me the URL I had to do, but in order to register for my jury selection or my jury duty, I had to go through a technological form. So we are built our society around something that is actually causing us physical damage and we can't get away from it. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're almost unable to function in society if you don't have technology these days. I mean, we, I, I think one of the things that I mentioned whenever you first mentioned to me that contest was that most people couldn't even get away with doing that because of their job with putting their phone down for a month uh, because there is this expectation whether from your work or like you said your civil duties or even just interacting socially in the world there is an expectation that you have that digital connection i'll take it one step farther i mean i'm assuming at some point in your life you were you you've read the 2600 they still have on the back spotted a cell phone or spotted a payphone. We don't have the ability even like we used to, to just walk up to a phone on the street and put, you know, 25 cents in and make a phone call. We've even removed pretty much the ability to communicate without your own independent digital media. Without the device that you're attached to. Which is in my opinion, almost as symbiotic as a pacemaker at this point or some type of embedded electronics. It's just, it's a psychological addiction as much as it is a physical. Yep. And, and I think that we're, we're starting to see those impacts. I think this is a great way into the, the question of that interpersonal and those social mm -hmm. health issues. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've found fascinating is that I recently saw some metrics that said that most younger generation teens and early college students, the numbers of those students that are sexually active or engaged in a relationship has just plummeted. And so most people, their 
interpersonal, their social re interactions are all confined to that digital space. And I think we're now starting to see this weird phenomenon of like the AI girlfriend. And I think it only further exacerbates that problem. You've got these people that are uncomfortable inside their own skin in the real physical world. They're only comfortable with the digital space. And you give them an alternative now to find love or sexual gratification or whatever they're interested in in that space in a digital form that doesn't require interactions with another human being. And I think it's going to further entrench that that problem that we're already seeing of uh this next generation that is unable to function in a social world. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to take this a little bit more down the futurist path, but I'm trying to find it. Oh my gosh. There was, uh, we talked about this and I, I can't remember what her name was, but she was this, the first influencer that had decided to take all of her media content and turn herself into a, pay per minute AI girlfriend. She was the first one that did it. And it was shortly, it was right around the, the end of COVID. Is she making a small fortune now? Uh, no, she thought that people were going to be all, I'd like to just tell you to just tell me that I'm a good person and forgot the fact that man as an animal is a truly filthy, filthy, disgusting. Creature. <laughs> yep. So I, and I'm trying to find it here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I will find this and, and I'll add it to our, our, our notes for the episode. But to make a long story short, she thought this was going to be this grand idea where she, she was just go, it was going to be just like, you know, June Cleaver and people were going to be appropriate. She saw what kind of depraved acts the people that were tr subscribing actually wanted to it. And she just went, the whole thing, I think, only lasted like a week. Had and she ever been on the internet? Like, you seem, this seems like the, the natural logical conclusion of what I don't happen. know if it was so much that, or, you know, this was around when that whole first deep fake AI kind of merging thing was happening towards the end of COVID. And I think, kind of like Chat GPT, she thought that there would be some guardrails around what the AI would be permitted to, to do. Got it. But yeah. My question is, you know, if you take the statistics that you're looking at, and, and I want to be tasteful in, in how I, I, I present this, you know, if you take a look back at when, you know, the VR was the first big rage, you know, now there's an, an entire adult line of VR. So if we take the adult VR, we take the AI girlfriend. And then you start looking at some of these technology-enabled adult toys. This, to me, is the ultimate recipe for disaster for us as a human species. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're a, the entire point of kind of continuing to exist. Well, I guess the the prerequisite to continue to exist as a species is reproduction is procreation and if we find a digital proxy a substitution for that by kind of to your point the the confluence of all of these trends that we're seeing where does i, I mean it, it comes back to kind of elon musk's current idea of this population collapse but something that potentially could become so much worse than just the the increasing tendency of people to not reproduce as much i mean at that point we Absolutely. we don't even have any incentive to do so no 
and my last point on this is taking it back to, to the title of the episode, you know, are we getting dumber? If we take a look at the ultimate basics of what life requires, like we just said, is procreation. It's the continuation. Now, if we continue to take a look at this more from a, a, a human perspective and take some of the technology out for a minute, the struggles that relationships require or the struggles that are inevitably in relationships force growth in both individuals or the relationships typically fail. If I have nothing but a an AI girlfriend that is doing only the things that I want, you just fine tune I, those annoying struggles yeah, out. Yeah, you know, there's no more of that. You know, you're making me meatloaf again. You know, <laughs> and my, my point about what I was just saying is, then we can add, we can add an immersive visual effect that's now taking care of one of my senses. Adult novelty toys are taking care of another physical aspect of what would normally be a two-part process. What happens when, and we've seen the, to your point earlier, the, even the ability to communicate in text has degraded to where we have abbreviated languages and created new sub-languages for text. We are moving up farther and farther away from actual face-to-face -face conversation. What happens when that becomes so uncomfortable, especially if we look at the rise of anxiety disorders and, and just and, you know, people's inability to cope with real life? I think we may be doomed. <laughs> We're definitely heading that way. Uh, I, one fi final question I did want to kind of circle back on is we're, we're seeing kind of we've talked about how we've become dependent on all of these various different technologies and obviously the new big emerging thing is large language models and extremely capable artificial intelligence and i think we have to ask ourselves is this different than what we've seen before because all of these different technologies that we've looked at previously whether we're talking about the calculator or gps a lot of it just kind of allowed us to offload memory type tasks, but it, we weren't offloading our actual thinking process. And yeah, what this new technology was still with us, it was just taking care. You know, I know I I know Hutch has a phone number. Do I need to remember all nine digits of that? No, I, I'll, I'll put that over there in a file. But I still know have to know when I want to call him. The purposes. You know, th there's a cognition behind it. Yep. What you're so talking you, about is some completely off the reservation stuff. Yeah. When you, when you say we're doomed, this is this is kind of where my brain goes to is we already see the significant consequences of technological dependency prior to the technology thinking for us. And I'm genuinely concerned when I look at, I mean, I, I look at high school students now and and college students as well. Every ChatGPT is writing everybody's homework. Mm -hmm. uh, the academic industry is not figuring out good ways to incorporate this new capability to still be intellectually stimulating. So people Actually, are just checking I, I, out. I have to interrupt there. I have to interrupt. I, I heard uh, uh, an article the other day, and it actually made me think of you 100%. And it, to that point, 
this teacher decided rather than fighting chat GPT, they decided your job as the student is to provide me the prompt. And then you will give your report based on the prompt. So we have basically turned education into nonstop jeopardy. Remember to phrase your questions in the or your answers in the form <laughs> of a question. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's school becomes prompt engineering, right? Yeah. You know, and so I, I, you, you yeah, gotta no, wonder, sorry, we've, you, we, you got me riled up on that last one there. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've seen the serious consequences already with, uh, technological dependency. And I have to wonder when we skip 10 to 20 years down the road, now that people are checking out in terms of real cognitive offload, they're actually offloading, not just memory, but their cognition itself where that leads us in the future and circling back to the entire point of this episode do we end up in a future that looks a whole lot like idiocracy I, i'm gonna throw one final comment and, and that i promise this is the last one your last statement made me really think about the philosophies of the futurist fm 2030 uh, this is basically one of the fathers of transhumanism and cryogenics. And he said, in the future, it's not going to be political parties that run the world. It's going to be either up, up lookers or down lookers. And I might have that are up wingers and down lookers, essentially up or down. And the point behind his philosophy was the people that will survive will be the ones who adopt and embrace technology and the ones that would fail would be the ones that look down to the earth in the old ways. And I'm just questioning if maybe he had it backwards. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is, I, I, it's a, a real challenge because I, I think you almost have to, to be able to be competitive, to be functional in society, you almost have to, to his point, adopt and integrate with that technology in order to be able to be functional. But at the same time, you have to, it's the hard not to here. recognize the problems that it's creating and kind of the deficiencies that it's creating. I'm going to just simply say the poison in this case is the cure. Yeah. Great, great talk, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up. It was a pleasure, as always. Um, fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks, Lynn. Thanks to all the listeners. Uh, any final Appreciate words? It. And uh, thank you, Hutch. And we'll we'll do it again next time. Yep. With that, Cybercognition over and out. Cheers. Cheers. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybercognition Podcast with Hutch, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company, and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.